Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on August 1st, 2017. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... There is really a difference, apparently, between, you know, this curiosity that we feel when we are surprised or puzzled by something or see something ambiguous, and that curiosity, epistemic curiosity, which drives us, you know, to really explore and find out. That's Mario Livio. He's well known as an astrophysicist for his work on the Hubble Space Telescope and his research on using supernovas to gauge the rate of the expansion of the universe. And for the last two decades, he's written books for a general audience. His latest is titled, Why? What Makes Us Curious? To find out, I called him at his home in Baltimore. What is curiosity for people who have not read your book? Uh, or I, I really should say, what are the different kinds of curiosity? Yes, of course, in everyday language, curiosity usually refers to one thing. Uh, but, uh, you know, once you go more into the research, you realize that uh, there is more than one kind of curiosity. Uh, so let me just uh, give at least four kinds, according to psychologist Daniel Berlein, uh, who devised this scheme. Um, so there is perceptual curiosity. Uh, this is the curiosity we feel when we see something that puzzles us, something that is, doesn't quite agree with what we think we know, or, you know, it generally surprises us. That's perceptual curiosity. Uh, opposite that, there is epistemic curiosity. That's the, the true love of knowledge. That's the type of curiosity that drives uh, all scientific research uh, that causes us to ask why and how and things of that nature. Uh, so that, that's a kind of a sort of a lust of the mind. Uh, this is this epistemic curiosity. Then on, on another axis, so to speak, there are two other types of curiosity. One is very, very simple. That's specific curiosity. That's when we miss a very particular piece of information. Like, uh, you know, we miss a word in a crosswords puzzle, or uh, we want to know uh, something like, uh, I don't know, who said we're all in the gutter, uh, but some of us are looking at the stars. Or a very specific piece of information would satisfy that type of curiosity. And finally, there is a diversive curiosity uh, which is the type of things we do mostly toward of boredom. Uh, this is, you know, uh, youngsters uh, continuously searching for text messages or people impatiently wanting to know what the next uh, smartphone model is going to bring and things like that. Right, and you spend a lot of the book talking about the epistemic curiosity because you're a scientist. Right, but also about perceptual curiosity because... In particular, and that's one of the things that, that I uh, kind of discovered while researching this, is that uh, there is really a difference, apparently, between, you know, this curiosity that we feel when we are surprised or puzzled by something or see something ambiguous, and that curiosity, epistemic curiosity, which drives us, you know, to really explore and find out. Um, and the difference is uh, both in the state of mind in which each one of those puts us, uh, perceptual curiosity, I mean, this thing when, when we're puzzled or see something ambiguous, uh, puts us in an unpleasant state, an aversive state, 
from which we try to escape. While epistemic curiosity, that love of knowledge, is associated with a pleasurable state, um, one that is, you know, is an anticipation of reward. So they really are quite different. That's really interesting that they're they're so different in that in one you're trying to get rid of an itch and in the other one you're enjoying the whole process. That's um, right. Well, what's from an evolutionary point of view, you talk about the purpose of curiosity being to reduce prediction errors, and I found that really interesting. Yes. You know, at the end of the day, uh, that's largely what we're trying to do. I mean, you know, we, we try to understand our environment to the point where we understand all causes and effects um, so that we can be more predictive and we, to, to reduce the errors we make in prediction. Uh, now, I'm not talking about, you know, predicting the stock market or something like this. Uh, we're talking about predicting everything that happens in our, in our immediate neighborhood. Yes, uh, when you're a tiny, tiny little baby, I mean, predicting is, uh, you know, even that, uh, okay, you pull the edge of this book and uh, the whole book comes with it, uh, things of that nature. But we need to understand fully our environment uh, and, and to make as few as possible prediction errors. Right. You want to really be able to predict that if I walk over that cliff, I'm going to fall to my death. That's right. That's this real or, evolutionary survival. Or, or if advantage. you didn't learn that, I mean, you wouldn't live to tell the tale. Right. You're not going to pass your genes on to the That's next right. generation. Um, some of the psychological tests that were done with very small children that you talk about in the book are really fascinating. You want to go briefly into that a little bit? Uh, yes, uh, some are, are, you're right, they are, they are absolutely fascinating, and, and also it is uh, a little bit new that, you know, experiments are done with very small children. So, um, yeah, so for example, there, is, there was one experiment done at MIT uh, by Laura Schultz and her collaborate, collaborators, um, where they gave uh, children some sort of a box uh, which had two levers, and uh, when one pushed on the two levers together, uh, two puppets popped up at the top of the box. But there was no way uh, to tell which lever popped which puppet or whether one lever already popped both puppets and so on. And uh, it turned out that when you left children in this situation where they had this sort of confounded evidence, uh, children continued first to understand this box uh, to see which lever operates what uh, before turning to, let's say, a new toy. While children to whom you demonstrated already, you know, which lever does what, were not interested in exploring further this box and immediately turned to a new toy. So. Uh, this basically demonstrates that children are really interested in this cause and effect type thing. Uh, they understand relatively early that you know every effect is is linked to some cause, and and they want to understand those. That's really amazing to me that they that they they inherently there's a problem. They understand there's a problem, and for some reason they want to solve that problem. Right. 
tell us about the relationship between curiosity and what you call in the book information processing ability. The thing is the following. You see, if you are very curious, uh, suppose you are, you know, I mean, two examples that I give are, are Leonardo da Vinci and Richard Feynman, uh, two of the most curious people to have ever existed. So the thing is, if you are curious about many things, or even about one thing, but in great detail, then what that means is that your brain and mind uh, put value on that knowledge. But in order to actually achieve that knowledge, you need a very good information processing ability because otherwise how could somebody like Leonardo be interested in so many things? I mean, he need, his, his mind needed to be able to process all the information that was around him in order to be able to assign value to all of that so that he will be uh, fascinated by all that stuff. Another aspect, another subject in the book is uh, you talk about the positive feedback loop uh, in the course of human evolution between curiosity and the brain, how they fed each other. Right. So, um, I mean, it, it's a question, how did we evolve to become what we are? In particular, I, I mean, being primates, we have already an advantage over other species because we can cram more neurons, you know, the basic computational units of our brain into a smaller volume. But then the question is still, um, why are we, um, you know, more capable uh, to do things than, say, chimpanzees or bonobos or, uh, or gorillas, for that matter? Uh, and uh, what happened then was a dramatic increase in the number of neurons in, in our cerebral cortex or, or our ancestors, you know, the Homo habilis and the Homo erectus and eventually into Homo sapiens. Um, when you look at the last common ancestor of, of us and, and chimpanzees, then, you know, that, that species had, uh, you know, maybe 30 or so billion neurons in their brains and we today have on the average about three times that, 86 billion or so. And the question is, what caused, you know, this dramatic rise? Um, and uh, there are various theories about this. And uh, my guess is that at the end of the day, uh, probably all of those worked somehow together. And by that I mean, so cooking perhaps played a role because cooking allowed for a more efficient uh, processing of food, allowed for eating food that otherwise they couldn't, uh, which provided uh, more energy uh, because the, the brain consumes a lot of energy. Uh, walking on uh, upright uh, surely played a role because that consumes uh, much less energy than you know walking on foreign knuckles. Um, the shortening of our digestive system allowed for some savings of energy uh, in the digestive system. Uh, but what, what I threw into that is that in every one of those stages, curiosity must have played a very interesting role because 
you see, imagine, you know, even cooking, okay, so these early humans, they, they saw a fire, you know, maybe a lightning struck the forest, and and then some animals got burned, but then they were curious to try to taste what those animals, uh, you know, tasted like, and suddenly they discovered, wow, you know, when it's cooked, it tastes better, and uh, also I need to chew it less, and things like that. Uh, and similarly, with the development of tools, I mean, you know, they suddenly discovered that, aha, if I have this uh, sharpened stone, I can perhaps get uh, into the bone and get bone marrow out of it, and so on. So curiosity was played here a feedback role with these other things, which enhanced each other and eventually led to the dramatic increase in, in the human brain. Uh, let me and of course, the appearance of curiosity itself and the ability to ask why was associated with the increase in the, in the number of neurons uh, in the human brain. One of the really nice things about the book is that the, the details of the experiments with kids and the discussion of the evolutionary history, all that is fascinating, but you then leaven it with your interviews with curious people. Why, how did you get that idea to do that? And, and tell us a little bit about some of the folks who you spoke to. So, uh, you know, originally when I, when I started thinking about writing the book, I actually thought that, you know, I will only try to explain curiosity. Namely, you know, to explain what are the psychological states, what, what are the mechanisms in the brain, and so on. But as I was writing that, that I, I started thinking, but wait a second, there are all these very exceptionally curious people, and, and it must be fascinating to talk to some of them and see what drives them. Uh, even though, you know, that's perhaps a little bit less scientific, but it, it must provide some sort of insights. Uh, so that's how I came up with the idea of, uh, of talking. Well, first of all, I, of course, discussed Leonardo and Feynman, who were extraordinarily curious people of the past, but then I decided to actually talk to a few living people. And a uh, few of the people I talked to are people such as uh, Noam Chomsky, uh, who needs no introduction, very famous linguist, uh, you know, worked on the brain, music, is a very active political figure, and so on. Uh, Brian May, uh, lead guitarist for the rock band Queen, but who is also a PhD in astrophysics, uh, is also an expert in uh, Victorian stereophotography, uh, is an uh, activist for animal rights, he was chancellor of a university and so on. Um, Fabiola Gianotti, uh, who he is the director general of CERN, of uh, where the Large Hadron Collider, the accelerator, is, um, uh, was led a huge group that discovered the Higgs boson. But at the same time, her first degree was actually in music, and she's an accomplished pianist. Um, I had Marilyn Vos-Savant, who... Um, you know, writes the column Ask Marilyn, but also has the highest recorded IQ of any person ever, uh, sort of a, really an astounding 228. Uh, the tests really are not particularly reliable at that end, sure. but uh, still, I mean, the, the fact that anybody would come with a number like that is, is pretty amazing. 
So, yeah, these are a few. I, I had nine such people that I interviewed. The astronaut. He's really fascinating because he just kept getting degrees because he became interested yes. in so many yes. different things. That's right. Story Musgrave is, uh, of course, a very, very famous astronaut. He also serviced Hubble, um, among other things. But, uh, yes, he, he just kept getting degrees one after another, starting, you know, with mathematics and computer science, and, uh, you know, ending up with, uh, uh, he's a medical doctor, he has a degree in literature, uh, statistics, you name it. I mean, he, he just has an incredible number of degrees, uh, one after another. And uh, uh, interestingly enough, I mean, he can even give a sort of a very plausible explanation as to how he advanced uh, from one to the next. But still, this is something that most of us don't do. Sure. In retrospect, it looks like a, a, a logical road, but as you're living it, it can be a little haphazard. Right. You were preparing for a talk a few years ago, and, and you came up with this uh, phrase, curiosity is the best remedy for fear. Right. It's, you know, we are, most of the time we're afraid on, on things that are unknown to us or that we don't understand. Uh, but if we're curious enough about them and we learn about them, uh, then that, you know, eliminates most of the fear. Um, I, I cited Vladimir Nabokov, the famous author, uh, who said that uh, uh, curiosity is the purest uh, form of... Um, insubordination. I yes, have, yes. Of insubordination. <laughs> right. I have the quote uh, in front of me because I also really like that. Right. So, I mean, it, it is, you know, curiosity gives you this freedom uh, to be interested in, in everything. Of course, as long as you, you don't infringe on anybody else's freedom. Um, so, yes, I, I strongly believe that curiosity is the best remedy for fear. Yeah, and you also spoke to Freeman Dyson, and one of, one of the things that he said was being a scientist gives you the license to work on any scientific problem. Just because you're a physicist, that doesn't mean you can't become interested and do research into neuroscience. That's right, and of course he himself did that, uh, you know, in things ranging from mathematics to other things to uh, you know, studying clinical trials and, 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 and just, just everything in between. So th that's right. So, so that's that type of freedom. So you have some prescriptions in the book for how to foster curiosity. Yes, I, you know, I, I must tell you that I, I was a little bit concerned in putting those in because from the beginning, I didn't mean this book and I still don't mean it to be some sort of a how-to book. Um, so, so I only devoted like, you know, one small section of a chapter uh, to that. But I thought that I do need to at least put in a few insights that I learned from, you know, talking to all the curious people and from understanding a little bit better of how curiosity works. And perhaps the nicest lesson is one I heard from Lord Martin Rees. Um, which, which put it in a very clear fashion. And, and that's the following. Um, let's suppose you want to make somebody curious in something. For example, in education, suppose you want to make children curious in, in science, let's say. But it, it's not necessarily that. It could be wanting to make your coworkers, uh, you know, curious about something. 
the idea is start with something that they are already curious about because everybody is curious about something unless they are you know very deeply depressed or have some brain damage uh, everybody is curious about something it, it may not be the thing you think they should be curious about but they are curious about something in the case of children for example most children are curious about dinosaurs or about outer space so if you want to teach them science start with dinosaurs because they're already interested in this and then you know find ingenious ways to connect the dinosaurs to other topics you know but in a natural way that they will be led towards these other things instead of uh, you know starting with something that for some reason you think they should be curious about like uh, i don't know how do bodies roll down inclined planes which <laughs> you know maybe bored them stiff well you're telling uh, the story about your own daughter correct um so yeah I, this is a true story that happened with my youngest daughter when you know she was asked to do a science experiment at school and uh and, and I, you know, the so-called scientists started, uh, you know, suggesting all kinds of uh, simple lab experiments that I could think of. And she found all of those extraordinarily boring. These and, were experiments to study uh, acceleration due to gravity. Yeah, you, you know, the free fall acceleration using a pendulum and an inclined plane and this and throwing things from the ceiling and I don't know what. But she she was really, you know, completely bored to death by my suggestions. And, and then she came up with something that at first I thought was crazy. You know, when she told me that she wants to discover which lipstick, now you must understand this was in middle school sometime, uh, which lipsticks can sustain the largest number of kisses. Now, I thought, but wait a second. I mean, she wasn't wearing any lipstick she wasn't kissing anybody why would she be interested in that and it turned out she wasn't interested in the lipstick at all uh, it, it just uh, there was a, a company that on tv uh, was having an advertising campaign which claimed that their lipstick uh, could sustain the largest number of kisses and my daughter was interested in truth in advertising, namely, it was that claim true or not? And, you know, at first it, it, it sounded to me like, you know, a silly experiment, but at the end, you know, we found really good scientific ways to test, uh, you know, a whole bunch of lipsticks and to actually determine, by the way, it turned out that the advertising was correct, um, but, but we found it through through scientific experiments, for example, by, you know, weighing with very high precision balances um, the lipstick that, you know, stuck to a piece of paper when, when, you know, you pressed your lips against that piece of paper. So it turned out to be a real scientific experiment, even though it started with an interest that to me sounded bizarre to begin with. The, the answer is obvious from, from the Dyson quote, being a scientist gives you the license to work on any scientific problem. But, but still, I'm going to ask you, why did you, as an astrophysicist, get so curious about curiosity that you had to write this book? Well, you just gave the answer right, yourself. Right. I mean, I, I'm just an, 
very, very curious person. And as a result of this, at some point, I became extraordinarily curious about what is curiosity and how it works. And I decided that, you know, I'm willing to put the, you know, more than four years of research into this topic in order to be able to write this book. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can also check out our preview coverage of the total solar eclipse that will be visible in parts of the U.S. on August 21st. We'll have a podcast about solar eclipses coming up soon, too. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. So who wrote, we are all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars? Oscar Wilde.